0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45
1: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Marketers and advertisers, brands big and small. You've been after a special someone for a while now. You think they're into you. I mean, you share the same interests,
0: both passionate about the same stuff. Why wouldn't they be? Wait. There's a moment of silence. It's finally just you two alone.
1: They're waiting. Go on, shoot your shot. You've got a voice. Use it now. Hearts are racing. Breathing becomes heavier. This is your chance to win them over. So what are you going to say? Get closer to your audience. Make podcast ads with Acast. Head to go.acast.com closer to get started. If you're happier and more relaxed and in a good headspace, then you're gonna do a better job. I think I think that would apply to almost any job I can think of.
0: Welcome to the Humorology Podcast with me, Paul Barros, and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business, sport, and entertainment who are going to share their wisdom and their use of humor with you. Humorology is the study of how humor can dramatically improve your business and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock, and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on this edition of the Humorology Podcast is a multi-award winning author, television screenwriter and performer. He is in the pantheon of hugely successful crime writers and his output is not only prodigious, but prolific, having produced around 30 publications in just over 20 years. He's also the world's only best-selling author to have had a successful career as a stand-up comedian, actor and musician. He draws a fascinating parallel between performing comedy and writing crime fiction. And has said, crime novels are full of punchlines. They're just very dark punchlines. Mark Billingham, welcome to the Humorology podcast.
1: It's very nice to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, it's a great pleasure. How much of a help was a background in comedy to writing the dark punchlines of crime fiction?
1: Oh, it was hugely helpful. I don't think I realised that it would be. It took me a few years to realise quite how helpful it had been. I mean, you know, firstly, from a very basic standpoint, as you know, you've got to engage that audience very quickly. You know, you can't walk on stage at the comedy store and go, stick with me, I'll get funny in about 10 minutes. You've got to be funny (laughs) straight away or they'll throw bottles at you. And similarly with a book, you know, I mean, I, I will give a book 20 pages. And if something hasn't engaged me, in that 20 pages, a voice, a hook, a something. I'm gonna put it down and pick up something else. That writer hasn't done their job. So firstly, I learned that about you know hitting very hard and keeping it going and keeping the pages turning in the way you have to keep the laughs coming. Um, but just in terms of the way crime fiction is structured, it's all about timing. It's all about the reveal. You know, it's all about that moment similar to a joke where the audience think the punchline is coming from one direction, then it hits them from somewhere else. And that happens in crime fiction all the time. You know, the, the revelation of a killer, the you know, a clue, a red herring, a body, whatever it might be. So yeah, all sorts of, of punchlines in, in crime fiction. But like I said, in uh, you know, as you referenced in your intro, very dark ones most of the time.
0: For our listeners, uh, we, we worked on the same circuit for a goodly amount of time. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We were Actually, funnily enough, somebody described it to me. I said I was having you on. And a friend of mine, when I told him I was interviewing you, he said, weren't the Calypso twins and the Tracy brothers like the blur and oasis of the comedy circuit in the 80s and
1: 90s? (laughs) We we certainly never got booked on the same bill together. There was only usually room for, if it was a big benefit or something, but most of the time there was only room for one musical comedy double act. I think I might have worked with you later when I was a solo act, if I was comparing or something.
0: you compared us a few times. You were a great compare at the store yeah. and Jean Gleur's as yeah, yeah. as well. I'm just wondering if if we were Blur and Oasis, does that make the Rubber Bishops pulp?
1: It was a bit of a heyday. It was a bit of a golden time for the musical, the musical comedy double act, wasn't it? But in the way of all things, they end up. They end up splitting up. They always do.
0: It's like when it's bands, isn't it? Basically. Yeah. Yeah. musical differences Uh, no we didn't have any Ainsley and I are still best mates so that's a good are you you still in touch with Mike
1: I I don't really see Mike very much again we never had a falling out he just went in a different direction he's a teacher now and I haven't seen him for a long time I haven't seen an occasional exchange on social media but that's about it
0: I mean because you're so successful as a rock crime writer now do you have a, a sort of a real wants to get back on stage regularly.
1: Well, I do do it. I do do that. I get my performance jollies all the time at book festivals. I mean, I, I, I'm always drawn to the more comedic side of things, even though the books are largely very dark. I do a, a two man show with a writer called Chris Brookmeyer, who's a writer of kind of, who's a hugely funny man. He's done, I got him into doing some stand up at the store once. And we do a show together that is purely for laughs. I mean, it's pure scatological nonsense for laughs. And I'm a member of a band with a bunch of other crime writers. And I, was you know, come I, I that. absolutely need that stage time. I still really need that. What I miss is the 20 minutes on stage or the 40 minutes on stage. What I don't miss is sitting in a grotty dressing room at two in the morning. You know, I don't miss any of that.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's where we know that there, there's no glamour in that bit. And and having spent years in those grotty dressing rooms, and which are sometimes not even dressing rooms. You remember the old dressing room at the, uh, the Leicester Square Comedy Store, which was oh, yeah. literally...
1: absolutely i do absolutely i do where where the toilet was the sink um i remember walking in there one day and seeing a very famous female comedian who i shall not name pissing in the sink thinking oh
0: that's showbiz Uh, yes welcome to show business it was great so what makes you laugh mark
1: So i was thinking about this i mean right now the thing that makes me laugh or the person that makes me laugh and, and it's a joy is is my son my son Jack who is 23 and we laugh all the time and and there's something very special about I mean it's not just a laugh isn't it you can laugh at a joke you can laugh at a joke you read in a, in a book or that somebody says on TV but there's something about the company you're in there's something about the context that makes the laugh that much more precious and when he makes me laugh he makes me laugh and I laugh but I'm also enormously proud of him I'm kind of enormously proud that he has such a great sense of humour I mean I think if there's one thing you can pass on to your kids if it's that you know you've done your job. And uh, no, he he makes me laugh all the time. I mean, that thing about context is funny. I don't know if you've ever seen this. I'm sure you have. There's a a video I saw once where it's comedy. The camera is on the audience at a comedy club. It may well even have been the comedy store. And the joke is told. And then they show the reaction in slow motion of like 600 people laughing. And what you see is people checking out the people next to them. It's a fraction of a second. It's just the eyeballs move. It's just, you know, it's kind of, can we all laugh? It's that shared, you know, it's that communal experience of laughter, which is very different from when you read something when you laugh out loud at something on the telly when it's just you. That's a very odd moment. But yeah, my, my son makes me laugh a lot.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny that, you know, because we're recording this in lockdown and when we go back, I mean you can't really get an atmosphere for comedy unless people are tightly packed in.
1: Well, there are a lot of comics I know now who are doing the gigs on Zoom and it's just the weirdest experience. So I in mean, not only is there no direct interaction, sometimes they can't even hear even if people are on a screen laughing they can't hear it and it's just telling jokes into into the ether you know it's just the most bizarre experience
0: so is there any chance of your son jack going into comedy
1: i think it's just the way he is i'm not sure he, i'm not sure he knows what he's going to go into but he's just he will always look for the gag he will always look for the gag and it's uh it's a great
0: instinct, that. <laughs> it is. Oh, well, uh, by the way, my son Sam is 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 the same. It's a, it's a joy. But uh, then we get into, is is humour nature or nurture? And is growing up in an environment where you've got a funny dad? Or is it something that you hear? I mean, the Jesuits say, give me a child of seven and I will give you the man. Was the young Mark Billingham, Funny? Probably not. I mean, well,
1: I mean, I I certainly didn't grow up in a house where you know neither my my dad or later my stepdad were were you know comedically inclined. We'd watch all the classic sitcoms on telly. Once I got to school, yeah, I'd love to say I was the class clown. It wasn't quite that. I mean, that's such a cliche. But when it came to anything written, you know that that thing when you had to write a story in class. The golden moment for me, I mean, the absolute golden moment was if the teacher said, Mark, come and read your story out to the rest of the class. That was the best thing that could ever happen. I mean, I can still, I can still remember just how exciting that was. And I was trying to be funny. I remember writing, trying to write in an inverted commas funny story for my 11 plus English exam, which was... And I remember my teacher, Mr Turnbull, apparently took my mother aside and said, well, I think what Mark's done is funny. You know, fingers crossed, fingers crossed the examiner does. Um, yeah, I think that was always my first instinct was to try and make people laugh, I think.
0: So you would go that it's it's more nature than nurture, would you? That, that, that I, you have to hear funny, because I'm. that's the way I think about it because neither of my parents were... Particularly uh, funny, but you start to hear it, don't you? And it, you just yeah, know I mean, where my brother, the bag is.
1: My, my brother doesn't have that kind of instinct either. You know, he likes a good laugh, but he's not. He's not. He's not always looking for the joke. You know exactly what I mean. You know, you. I mean, the odd thing is, in terms of the books I write now, I have to resist that quite often because, you know, I write about a detective who is not a, a, a smart so he's not full of jokes, he'll think of the joke three days later. There are some other characters who bring humour into it, but it's not necessarily him so sometimes I go, oh that, that would be a great thing to say, that would be a very funny thing to say but it's not him, It's just not him, so I have to uh, you know, quite often fight that urge to put gags in right, left and centre Are
0: there any serial killers who in books who have great senses of humour?
1: Uh, well yes, I mean, uh, you know, uh, probably most notably Dexter, which, which then became a, 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 a huge successful TV series. Those, those books are very funny. I mean, I think later on we'll probably talk about is there anything that isn't funny? And I mean, arguably, you know, death is death is right up there as a kind of but you have to be funny about it. You kind of have to. I mean, there are whole books, and I've got a lot of books about funny books about death. But if you want to hear jokes flying thick and fast, you go to a murder scene, you know, which I which I have attended. And Cops have to have very black senses of humour. It's a coping mechanism. It's the only way. You can't take all that death and grief and pain and loss and darkness home with you at the end of the day, you know. It's a really interesting thing, and I've spent whole nights on, out on night shift uh, drive-alongs with cops, and the stuff they come out with is just unbelievable because they know that two minutes later they're going to be attending a fatal road traffic accident or a, or a murder or whatever. It's um, it's a very strange strange thing to experience.
0: Well, it's gallows humour, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, funny, we had people on the podcast. um, We had John Sweeney, for instance, on the podcast, who has been to 60 wars and insurrections and everything. And he talked about that everybody in war was funny to cope and as a coping mechanism.
1: Yeah, And I've I've interviewed a lot, of, and worked a lot with a number of pathologists, sort of fairly high profile pathologists who've worked on some just horrendous, horrendous cases. And they're some of the funniest and most entertaining creative people (laughs) that that you'd ever wish to meet. It's really bizarre, which is why I made, you know, the only ostensibly funny character in my books is a pathologist, Um, just because those people just tend to have very, very dark senses of humour.
0: Tell me a funny story about something that's happened to you.
1: (laughs) I was doing, okay, so I was doing a book event a few years ago uh, in Ireland, and I had a book that was about to come out. wasn't ready. There weren't finished copies of it, but what I had were little samplers. The publisher had created a whole bunch of samplers, thousands of these little, only about yay thick, three or four chapters, and I was giving them away during the tour. So every night I would do the, these events, and I would say, okay, well, there'll be a Q&A at the end, and any great questions, I'll give you, you win a copy of the sample, I'll give you a copy of the sample. So we got to the Q&A at the end, and a guy put his hand up on the front row and said i want to talk to you about audible uh, your audiobooks i really like your audiobooks i listen to them all the time and you narrate them you know what's it like narrating your own audiobook so i, I talked about that for a bit and I, we, I thought that was a great question and i said oh well done that's a great question here you go you win a sampler and i picked it up and i threw it at him and as it left my hand i mean in that split second as it left my hand i went he's blind <laughs> Of course, that's why he loves the audiobooks so much. But it was too late. It was like, ah, you know, that awful slow motion thing. And of course, the thing just hit him. And. Oh. It was just horrendous. I mean, you turn it into a, You kind of turn it into a funny story, and then you tell it. I mean, that's that that's happened with a lot of awful things that have happened at book events. You you save those stories up and then turn them into a routine. But that was that was about the worst.
0: Yeah, and uh, it's no wonder comedians call it dying when they 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 fail on stage. Isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, talking about being on stage and 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 dying. What's the worst heckle you've ever had? Well, about the worst well, death tackle.
1: I can remember. Well, uh, the worst death I can remember was was very late, closing the late show at uh, Jonglers, Camden, you know, two o'clock in the morning or something. And you know that thing when you walk out, they just look at you and go, we've had enough. And you know instantly, you just know you, you're yeah. doomed. So I did about five minutes to virtual silence and total apathy, thinking this is going to be a nightmare. And then there was a, a person right at the front who turned out to be, I think he was Polish, you know, where are you from? Desperately trying anything. And he turned out he <laughs> was Polish. So I just started asking him, what was what was the Polish for different things? For rude words. I mean, it was just r- rubbish. It was pathetic. But I started to get a hint of a reaction from the audience. And I thought, you know, you have that little moment of optimism when you think, I can turn this round. <laughs> <laughs> so I start going, what's Polish for this? What's Polish for penis? What's Polish for this? And then a bloke at the back just going, What's Polish for your shit? And <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> that was that's the one I that's the one I, I, I have nightmares about. And and you know sometimes it's just to be honest that wasn't a gig where it was a death where it was my fault. Sometimes it is. You know sometimes you're just when you're doing four gigs a night and you mess up and you really shouldn't have taken on that much work. But when you just walk on and they're tired and there's nothing you can do, that's the kind of work. In a way, you'd almost rather get get somebody shouting at you. Than hearing nothing, and you get those genius comedians, and you know the ones I mean, people like Bill Bailey or Sean Locke, or, you know, I don't know about you, but you and I, I would get a heckle, and something in you freezes. You don't want it. You know, you say, I've got this twenty minutes of material. I know it works. I don't want this heckle, and and something in you freezes. When they get heckled, something in them is liberated. It's like you watch them come to life, and you watch them go. Oh, let's have, let's have some fun. Let's play. You know, they're, they're a rare breed.
0: Yeah. Oh, they are a rare breed. The ones who will really, because I mean, actually uh, with experience, you do learn that actually it's not what you say. It's Mm. it's how you say it, you know, and and we all had a few stock heckle put downs in our back pocket. You know, when I want any more shit from you, I'll squeeze your head. You know, you know, what do you use for birth control? Is it your personality? You know, of
1: course, the thing to remember is not only do you do it for a living, you've got a microphone. There are big bouncers at the back of the room. They're drunk. I mean, you know, nine times out of ten, you will beat the heckler. Uh, But I mean, but some heckles, you know, you remember the genius heckles, you know, good evening, I'm a schizophrenic. Well, the pair of you can fuck off. You you just got to give in at that point and go, you win. Do
0: you remember the one of uh, uh, that? I can't remember which comic uh, went on with the microphone and said, can you hear me? And the the heckler said, yes, I can, but I'm willing to change places with someone who can't.
1: (laughs) And there was a comedian who came on stage at the Comedy Store, sort of open spot, who spent five minutes miming. Just miming, I do you know? Do all this, he's walking against the wind, and then a, and then a heckler went, "Oh, speak up, I'm blind." And then waited, <laughs> waited a couple of minutes, and went, "Has he gone yet?" That was that was, the killer. That was the killer.
0: <laughs> oh the kicker. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. There, there were some. I mean, did did you play the Tunnel Palladium as well? Mm-hmm. Which it was legendary for our listeners in the sense that Malcolm Hardy used to wind up the audience deliberately. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, we had to stop playing it when we went on to racist chanting at one stage. So well,
1: we stopped playing it when a comedian got hit with a glass. I'm trying to remember who it was, uh, might have been Kit Hollaback. Anyway, I know somebody got hit with a glass, and there was a bit of a movement that people went, we should just boycott this place for a while. Because yeah, Malcolm would wind them right up, and they, you know, Malcolm, Malcolm, and they would. It's like they would rehearse heckles. I, I'm quite convinced that the audience got together an hour before the show, and just <laughs> it, it was a bit of it, it was gladiatorial. It
0: really was. Well. It was a zoo, basically. It really was. Is everyone capable of being funny, Mark? Or... Because everybody in their profile, when they're looking for dates, will put good sense of humour, but...
1: No, I, I don't think they are. In the same way that if you can carry a tune you find it quite astonishing when somebody is tone deaf you've just sort of go how can you not how can you think you're in tune or if you can dance and you see somebody who can't dance who basically just has no sense of rhythm and you just go but that's sort of surely everybody understands rhythm I mean it's in us it's innate. but then you see somebody dancing and you go no you're just not getting this at all and I think therefore there are people who just can't tell a joke you know, couldn't tell the best joke in the world and get a laugh out of it because their timing's all over the place. They don't embroider it in the right way, whatever it might be. You know, this is an interesting thing. Here's a, This is right up, right up your alley, I would imagine, in terms of the book. When I first started writing, because of the background, I thought I should maybe write some comedy crime. I maybe, you know, and, and there is, there are some comedy. And back then there were a couple of moderately successful comedy crime writers, Carl hyerson and American, notably, but very few. And I remember at one of the first conventions I went to, there was a seminar called Does Humor Hurt Your Sales Figures? I've never forgotten that. <laughs> and the reason for it is this, why there are so few humor, I mean, genuinely humor, well-known humorous writers you know, which is really sad, can you know, being the country that, that produced PG Woodhouse and even the war or whatever it might be, that yeah. there are so few. And the reason for it is this an editor gets sent something that is this is a funny book. And either they go, Well, I think it's funny, but will anybody else? Or this might be the funniest thing in the world, but I don't get it. So the easiest thing in the world is to pass. It's they're very scared of funny books. And that's the same thing I think applies to basically, you know, you know, it's like you tell 10 people the same joke. Eight of them will laugh their socks off and two of them will stare at you. It's, so I think no is that's a very long winded way of saying no. I don't think everybody can be funny.
0: So for our listeners, because we're trying to give them tips and techniques, how is there a way to become funnier?
1: Again, I kind of don't think so. I mean, you know, there are plenty of people people taking comedy workshops and running comedy been going for, for donkey's years and produced a whole load of great comedians. But I believe those great comedians would always have been great comedians. I think what they're taught is, you know, microphone technique and, you know, the way to build a routine or, you know what I mean? You know, plumb into themselves a bit more and use their own experience for, for their material. But I don't think you can teach somebody. It's like teaching somebody who's got no sense of rhythm to have a sense of rhythm. You can't teach it. You either, you either hear it or you don't. So I don't think you can be taught to be funny. Uh, in the same way that I don't think you can be taught to be a good writer. You can become a better writer. You can weed out bad habits and you can learn discipline and you can, all that kind of stuff. But you can't teach somebody how to write. It's a craft. You can get better at it. But I don't think you can. I don't think if it's not in you, there's got to be something in you to begin with. Yeah, you can get better. You can get to a certain level. You can get to a sort of acceptable level. But I think if you want to go beyond that, there's got to be something fairly special there to begin with.
0: If somebody's got to make a speech, whether that's a wedding speech or a business speech, what's the advice? Because actually, I get brought in sometimes to help with CEOs making speeches. And most of the time I'm telling them not to do the funny and they're going, I need to start with a joke. And I'm going, well, unless you can really nail it. It could, you know, the worst thing is it dies on its ass, and then you go. But seriously,
1: yeah, you know, my closest friend is a comedian called Mike Gunn, and I was the best man at his wedding, in front of a room full of comedians, like a hundred comedians, yeah. and you, you know, you will know all of them, and I was absolutely wetting myself back there waiting to go on. And they were like animals. They were just, here comes the best man speech. They were rubbing their hands with glee. And as soon as I sort of took to the stage, they all crowded round like jackals, you know. And so I just went sincere. I put a couple of cheap put-downs in and then just went sincere. And you could see them all sort of go, oh... oh. I'm, I'm not going to do that. I, I think you're right. I mean, you go online and you see these how to write best man speeches and there are all these hackneyed old jokes, you know. Well, this is the second time today I've got up from a warm seat with a piece of paper in my hand, which, <laughs> God bless him, my, my late father-in-law said at our wedding. I'm kind of bless him for that.
0: <laughs> oh, good. Post-ironically, of course. No, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely not. I think that, I mean, that's a great piece of advice, I think, is is go sincere. At my wedding, I had a load of comics there as well. So making my speech was, I was heckled in my own speech. I know. Which was, it was like, and I, actually, I was thinking, yeah, okay, that, that I deserve this. I mean, I
1: did, it uh, I've been lucky enough to be a best man a few times and, and, and most recently it was a, a fellow crime writer. So the room was full of crime writers who are not, you know, some of them are absolutely hilarious, but most of them aren't. You know, because it's just not what they do. So I, you know, I put a lot of work into this speech, and if I say so myself, it was pretty funny. It was, you know, but people talk about it like I've never seen about be- that. Was the best best man speech you've ever seen? Because actually, they're not used to seeing somebody who, who has done this professionally, know, know kind of how to work a room, and it's and working the room, which is a very different thing from telling a joke. Oh. You know, it's not they're not the same skill necessarily, but.
0: Yeah, so how does somebody get better at working the room that you can't unless you you do a lot of it, presumably? Well,
1: you know, again, it's things like it's, well, it's stage time. You you just need stage time. But of course, again, in terms of some comedians, it, it is their very, it's in their nature and it's in their stage persona that they don't move, for example. And they're they're just a one they're one liner merchants just stand at the microphone and don't whereas I was always a prowler, just prowling around stage. And especially when you compare, that really is your job. Working the room literally means making contact with as many people in that room as you can, even if that's a hack thing of going, right, all the women in the room, where are you? All the men in the room, all the married couples, all the single people, all that stuff. You know, none of it's none of it's uh, rocket science really.
0: Well, you say that, but that's an art as well. I mean, to be a good compare is really difficult, I think. And there's only and in our time, I think there were uh, perhaps seven good compares. Mm. So, I mean, it's a, it was a real art to be able to do it. And we would name all the same people because as an act, when it kicked off or somebody died on their ass, you yeah. relied on the compare to, to bring them back. Yeah. But so, was it your drama background, because I know that you obviously acted, but you also had a drama degree. Was that, helpful in that stage uh, presence and understanding. Yeah, I mean,
1: it's, uh, it certainly meant that I wasn't shy. I mean, it is so much about confidence or, or rather making the audience think that you're confident. I mean, there's that crucial 10 seconds, you know, literally from when the compare goes, so please welcome, mm, and they clap, and, they, and there's that moment when you take the stage and take the microphone out of the mic stand. And that is absolutely crucial. And it's about saying to the audience, relax, I know what I'm doing. You know, you're in safe hands. And there there are some comics that just seem to have a natural way of making the audience go, oh, I so want to laugh at you. I, I, you're going to make me laugh. And there are some comics who rub people up the wrong way and they walk on and the audience go, right, make me laugh. You know, I am going to resist you know the urge to laugh as long as I possibly can but it is it is about that confidence thing and I think I so I had that from you know trolling around doing doing bloody Shakespeare all over the country or doing a a touring theatre company for a couple of years Uh, having said that the very first time I was booked at the comedy store I remember seeing a fine comic called Dave Cohen who'd been going for years before I was vomiting in the dressing room and I thought oh my God, he's been doing this years and he's listening to the late show crowd baying outside the door and he's chucking up and I'm going, oh my God. So yeah, I mean, it's 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 not the same thing as walking on at the, you know, the Theatre Royal Windsor. It's a very different experience.
0: Well, it's funny because uh, I always say that if you've worked the late show at the comedy store, nothing is ever scary again. Are you th- of the same mind?
1: Yeah, pretty much. It is It is the scariest thing. It is absolutely the scariest thing. When, as you say, I mean, they're only a few feet away. You know, you, you can literally <laughs> the other side of door and yeah you can hear them baying. You can, sometimes you'd hear them baying for blood. It's such a weird industry, isn't it? Because your best friend can be on before you. And there's a little nasty part of you going, I want you to die. Because if you absolutely <laughs> st- rip the ass out of this for 20 minutes, I can't follow you. Similarly, you know, it's very awful, isn't it? We've all been in that dressing room when someone has died and when they come through that door and we all look at
0: the everybody Everybody's head goes down. <laughs> you can't look at them. You yeah, don't want that, to be infected by it that. It's
1: very weird moving from that to, to publishing because, I remember going to the first, my first kind of publishing award ceremony about a year after I'd started, and somebody had just won the award for, I don't know, whatever it was, best new writer, and walked up to stage. And I looked around, and there was genuine warmth and congratulations. And, and I remember thinking, if this was comedy, this was a comedian getting up there. You know, the bitching would have started before he'd got to the stage. He's got that much talent. <laughs> me, never Buck, been funny. fun. It's competitive by nature. Because of that way evenings are structured, you know, it's, it's not like, you know what, it's like four acts and a compare. They don't all get together in the dressing room beforehand and go, let's have a great show, everybody. <laughs> there, there isn't, it's not like a team, you know. It's great if everybody does well, but it's also quite good if somebody doesn't quite often, in terms of the audience having a good evening. You know, three storming acts and one hideous death. What a great night.
0: So, <laughs>
1: well, most writers don't subscribe to the belief that in order for, for them to do well, somebody else has to do badly. It tides all all boats will rise on a, on a tide kind of thing. And so it's it's a nice, there are a nice crowds, nice gang to be a member of.
0: Do you know what? As a psychologist now, I go and speak at conferences and everything and like that. And very rarely does anybody say, your shit.
1: <laughs> That's right. I mean, people might, might not like my book, but they don't throw it at me. You know, <laughs> I, d- I don't get people at the, the you know, Hay Literary Festival going, taxi! I don't, I don't <laughs> get that. It's, it's much better.
0: You know? Once this has gone out, you might it might yeah, encourage of people. Of I
1: will. I will. <laughs> they were the worst heckles, the kind of knowing heckles. Yeah. You know, I mean, the great heckles we've already mentioned. You know, the creative heckles. When somebody just goes next, it's like, oh, oh
0: yeah. But do you remember in the in uh, the the comedy store days when Kim Kinney? Because the comedy store. Uh, Kim Kinney, used, for our listeners, used to run the comedy store. He used to, I didn't find this out till later, but when he felt the audience was too quiet and wasn't involved, he used to walk along the back and start the heckling himself, the bastard. God rest his soul. But
1: <laughs> not a surprise, not a surprise. <laughs> everything. But that's
0: just so our listeners can understand what kind of atmosphere we grew up in. What would the world be like without humour?
1: Oh, it'd be unbearable. I mean, it would be absolutely unbearable. On a very simple personal prosaic level, I can't read anything that doesn't have some humour in it. I can't write anything that doesn't have any humour in it. Because the world is like that, you know, even in the bleakest moments, there's humour. Because there has to be, because it's the way we cope as human beings. I always have this image in my head, I don't quite know where it came from of somebody walking away from the worst thing they could, the, that they could possibly be going through. I don't know identifying the body of their child, walking away from the mortuary, and slipping on a banana skin. There has to be those moments, and you know, in a way, in order for the dark to be truly dark, there has to be light, so you can, can compare the two. I can't bear things where there isn't some humour in there somewhere. There has to be. Oh my God, it'd be an awful world. It'd be an awful world.
0: Do you think it's a part of the human condition that that we have to because we are one of only a few species that actually do involve human. I know there's mm-hmm. rats. But is that the release valve that we actually need to be human, you think?
1: Yes, I think it is. And I think it's probably part of the evolutionary process in terms of us becoming, inadverted, commas, civilized. You know, I'm sure the first time, you know, a caveman hits himself on the thumb with his club, you know, and his mate laughed. You know, that, that was a massive step forward in, in human evolution. You know, up to that point, it's probably we've got to go and kill that mammoth or, or we're not going to eat tonight or we've got to avoid getting killed by the saber-toothed tiger. But as soon as there was some sitting around a fire and having a laugh, then I, th- I think that's a giant evolutionary step, you
0: know. Yeah, no, I, I agree. So can, can people be good communicators?
1: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. No, I don't think so. Although having said that, there's nothing worse than the kind of communicator who tries and fails to put humour in or, or, you know, crowbars it in when it's not appropriate. I mean, I don't know how many of the people watching this or listening to this will have had to sit through the horror of a road of, traffic awareness speed course. Those courses you're offered instead of having points well, on I your licence.
0: Uh, well, it, yeah. no,
1: I've done them twice. Oh, in a way, I just want this person to go, to show me all the PowerPoints and go, 30 miles an hour, you know, the where are the hazards on this? But when they go... And it reminds me of when I was driving along one day and they try to tell you some joke and it just falls horrendously flat and you just go you're making this worse you make just get it over with but when it's done well um I mean it is it is a way to make things that might not be palatable palatable to make your audience a bit more receptive to relax them to make them feel that they're in a safe environment and that it's you know not going to be horrible.
0: It's fine when it's done well, but I mean, it's like air crew who now think that, that, that they, they've got, this is my crowd. Yeah, yeah. And, and you go, why? You know, look, there will be occasional ones who you go, oh yeah, I've not heard that, that's fine, that's lightening it up. But there's people who are going, I'm on.
1: Yeah, well, I, I flew on an airline once in Canada, a small Canadian airline, where that was their thing. It was sort of the gimmick of the airline. So the whole point for the minute you got on the plane, they but well, they wouldn't stop. Even the not just the air, not just the crew, not just the you know, oh, I can't get my life jacket on, but the pilot, you know, will will be flying at the height of thirty thousand feet. Well, hopefully, <laughs> and you just do stop. Just stop it now. <laughs>
0: So, did you ever yeah. got, get invited to it? Because both my previous band, Morris Minor and the Majors, and the Calypso Twins, we used to work with Virgin, Virgin. Atlantic. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we never doing, did it. We, we talked about it once, but we never. It sounded horrendous to me.
0: Oh, well, uh, by the way, just the noise, because you weren't allowed amplification. Right. And then you were stuck literally right in front of the person who wanted to sleep. You know, <laughs> and you're going. Do you want to boogaloo very, very loudly in their ear?
1: Who came up with that idea? Who thought that was a good idea? I mean,
0: well, well actually, it was it was Branson because was uh, we did we did some of the uh, inaugural flights to like Miami and places yeah. like that, and it was it was about making it fun. And yeah. I mean, some people loved it, and it, some people. But you imagine if you're forced to be yeah. in there. It, yeah. It's it's a tough one, but it was an interesting experience, and I got to go to America a lot well, as a go. result of it. So you described yourself in another interview as a shameless show off. Mm-hmm. Is that I mean, welcome? Welcome to the club. But is that a gene? You think that that, that we we have that. You you need that feedback yep. loop.
1: Yes, I think it is. And it's interesting you were talking about when I was talking about my son and you were talking about your son, that thing about is it genetic? What what it, what what my son has always the thing I hated being told as a child, hated, was stop showing off. It was a thing that would cut me. It would cut me to the quick. You know, you'd know if you'd done something wrong, if you'd broken something or stolen something, but but stop showing off just felt such... It was crushing. And I remember th- vowing to myself that if and when I had children, I would never, ever say that to them, ever. Well, largely because showing off has, you know, been my career pretty much in one form or another. Who, who the hell would I be to say that? But I think it's a terrible thing to say to somebody. But... It is, in a way, comedy, stand-up comedy, is sort of the word, it, there's something kind of desperate about love me, love me, love me. Not just laugh at me, but love me, love me. It's kind of a weird thing. But I'm still performing now when I write the books. The books are a performance. You're still trying to give the best performance you can. And yeah, shameless show-off, drop of a hat, fridge opening. All the, I mean, I, I'm <laughs> absolutely, have, have always been that. And it's what it always said on my school report. Mark would do a lot better if he stopped showing off. You know. <laughs>
0: Well, no, but in a sense, I mean, for our listeners to take away, we had Dr. Richard Bandler on the podcast who developed the field of NLP. And he said, the problem is, and and you just said it, you said you swore that you would never tell your son not to, uh, or daughter not to show it off, not to be a show off. But it gets knocked out of people because actually most of us in life... Whatever you're doing, need to interact with people, need to, you know, make a speech, need to uh, inspire people. So a bit of showing off is a good thing if you know how much it needs in the mix.
1: One of the things, if I was when I'm swept to power and tired of popular opinion and I get to uh, organise the education policy in this country, one of the things I would make compulsory at school is public speaking. I don't mean you have to become part of the debating society, or st- but everybody at some point in their life will be, whether it's a wedding speech, whether it's at a business conference, whether it will have to stand up in front of ten people, or twenty people, or thousand people, and make a speech. I'm not saying you need to be turned into a master at that, but you need to have the fear of that taken away from you so it's not the most dreadful and frightening thing you've ever done
0: my theory on this is having spent a lot of time and lived in america is that americans are much easier with this for that very reason because they're all taught to do show and tell from a very young age yeah and it's a very simple thing you have to bring in something and go
1: a frog or a, whatever it is.
0: And then you get over that. And and as we know, fear of public speaking is the number one fear in the world. And as Jerry Seinfeld uh, pointed out, that death is only number six. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> is it important to be able to laugh at yourself?
1: Oh, a 100%. I mean, the people I... I've always respected the most in in whatever field I've worked in so uh television comedy but but largely in in writing and publishing are the people who take what they do enormously seriously but don't take themselves remotely seriously I think that's the only way to be i mean it's it's very simple you can sum it up quite easily by just saying don't be a dick, don't take yourselves too seriously.
0: people who can laugh at themselves actually have a a degree of uh... Understanding about the ridiculousness of wherever you are on that yeah. hierarchy, it, you know, it is ridiculous. You know, I think
1: I think it also helps if you're surrounded by a family who laugh at you all. Yeah. I mean, literally, will laugh at you when you're going, "Oh, look at this amazing review I've got in the Times." Will then just go, "Yeah, but it's not as good as he got," or you're there and just make you go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah all right, I'm being an arse." Yeah, you know, I yeah. Think yeah. kids really- are
0: great for that, aren't they?
1: <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Shut up. Where's my tea? (laughs) Exactly.
0: No, it just reminded me of a story. My mother's family are from the east end of Glasgow. So sort of... uh, And when Morris, Minor and Majors had their first hit, I went up to Glasgow and I was doing a gig up and I went to the Cranhill estate where my family lived. And these little... My little cousins all gathered around me and I was preening myself slightly. And one of them came up to me and went... Oh, Uncle Paul, we saw you on that there top of the Pops. And I just allowed me to puff my chest out enough and went, we thought you were shade. (laughs) Yeah, that's important. Thank you. But a little smirk on their faces. They knew what they were doing and it was beautiful. Yeah. Do people laugh enough, do you think, in the workplace generally?
1: I think people probably laugh less than they did because I think, People are possibly afraid to laugh, that maybe it's unseemly or it's not businesslike or, you know, I, and you certainly can't laugh at people in the sort of way you're talking about. I mean, a gen, you know what I mean? So, I'm, you know, somebody trips over a stapler and, uh, you know, crashes into a door. You laugh at them and the next thing you're being hauled up in front of HR <laughs> for bullying. So I do <laughs> I, I do think there's room for more of it. Definitely. And, I, and I'm not sure there's as much as there were, as there was.
0: But how do you encourage it more? Because that's the whole humorology project is built yeah. around. How do we actually get more laughter back into life and work?
1: Well, it clearly comes from people who are running departments. It's got to come from the top down, I think. And again, my experience of this is, is limited because I'm, I'm, I largely, I am my own boss and I work from home, but whenever I'm in the publishing environment and I'm in their offices and stuff, it's a very, it's a very uh, happy and open, it's all, you know, hot desking and open plan and all that sort of stuff. And everybody's encouraged to, you know, contribute ideas and whatever. But when it comes to actually, you know, I, I'm, I'm not in there largely when the meeting, well, I am. I am if the meeting's about me, and there are meetings with, you know, big slides and all sitting at a long table and so on. And there's always plenty of jokes, actually. There are jokes flying thick and fast, but what I notice is it's almost like it needs me to be the one that goes, it's all right, everybody can laugh. You know, somebody needs to say that. If this is a meeting that's about me or the marketing for my next book, that has to come from me. Because if I sit there and I go, right, let's see the facts and figures. What's the buy-in from Tesco or what's the what are Walshlands doing this year? Then it all gets very serious. Jokes and laughter flying around the table, but somebody needs to flick that switch and go, this is OK. So
0: know? that's leadership, isn't it? So I Leadership suppose. through laughter. It's like, yeah. uh, you know, somebody has to lead and go, this is OK.
1: Yeah. I think there is still a perception that it is not a natural thing to do in a business environment. You know, I yeah. think that, you know that we have to be serious. I think there's still a a perception that seriousness equates to uh, efficiency, which is clearly not the case. But you know, I think that's still a widely held belief.
0: If I asked you to make a business case for humour, what what would you include in it?
1: We all know that laughing, you know, in terms of what it does to release endorphins and and well sense of well-being and happiness and stuff, that has to equate. To doing your job better. I mean, surely. I mean, again, that doesn't seem like rocket science to me. If you, if you're happier and more relaxed and in a good headspace, then you're going to do a better job. I think. I think that would apply to almost any job I can think of.
0: But the trouble is that. It- I think now that um, businesses are more and more getting run by accountants. Mm-hmm. And so there has to be a spreadsheet that says, uh, you know, here's what we get for this. We, I can't see any uplift through laughter. So yeah. what's my return on investment? How do you define return on investment on that?
1: Now, I think it's almost impossible. You have a whole bunch of people, you know, I always imagine sort of like a, a Kafkaesque scene where, you know, hundreds of people are all sitting at a desk doing that. But once every five minutes, a joke is broadcast, you know, over, over a PA system. And, uh, you know, then the next day there are no jokes. And you basically see, well, you know, what was productivity like on each of these days? You know, that's probably not a fair way to do it. You'd, you'd actually need Billy Connolly standing up and doing five minutes of material once an hour or something. And there are other ways to do that. It doesn't have to be humour, but, but humour is certainly one of the things that would do that
0: We say humor, but it's really lightness, isn't it? You're in a creative environment. Surely you have to reach that state of mind whereby you're allowed to play. And, and, and humour is a part of that playing process, isn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah. And I mean, I know there's a lot of that goes on at, at, at my publisher. There's a, they're, they're, they encourage kind of evenings out and quiz nights and comedy clubs and whatever it might be. Just, and yeah, yeah, that's about bonding, I suppose.
0: So have you ever taken a joke too far?
1: Oh, almost certainly. I can't think of a particular example, but, but probably. No, not probably, definitely. And there are times when you, you wake up the next day and go, I oh, wish I hadn't said that. You know, where you just think there's one more laugh here. You know, it's it's that thing of just trying to wring every single laugh out of the thing. And you're not happy with one laugh, two laughs. You think I can get three, four out of this. And then, you know, you realize you said the wrong thing and you should have shut up.
0: But isn't that the whole learning process of comedy, isn't that, that you you have to be pushing the boundaries because otherwise, you know, you won't know where they are.
1: But yeah, pushing boundaries. Yeah, I mean, you have to push boundaries. It's a good thing largely, but I suppose if it, once it becomes personal, I'd be thinking of instances which were not professional. I'd be thinking of instances with a group sitting around with a group of friends in the pub. Okay. And then somebody a week later going, I was quite upset when you said that thing. And you go, I was, oh, sorry, I was just trying to get, I was, it was just a stupid joke. And I don't mind upsetting people in a comedy audience. And I remember once, I remember once when the Iraq war was on, when I was still in a double act and we did a huge medley about the Iraq war which was it used to storm it most nights, you know, to, to the themes of American musicals, you know, the American army is coming and over the plane. I can't remember what it was. It was all really nonsense, but it used to go down really well. And then one night at a club, there was a knock on the door and a woman was in tears, hugely upset because her son was out there. You know, I don't want to come out for a night at the comedy club and have that thrown at me. And I was really sorry the woman was upset but I was also thinking: you really think the best way to avoid the biggest story in the world right now is to go and listen to a bunch of comedians who are going to talk about it because that's what they do. I mean, I, I was sad; she was upset, but I—it I, wasn't like we didn't do it again the next night, you know.
0: Well, uh, I think it was James O'Brien's point where everybody finds everything funny until it's about them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and suddenly everything's going. Hold on! Hold on! Yeah. You know. I mean, the Morris Minor and the Major's story was the, you know, stutter rap was a joke about a rapper who had a stutter. You know, it's a very simple gag, the ridiculousness of that juxtaposition. But we, we only ever had about three complaints, but one of them was my mate stutters and I feel really angry yeah. for him. And he came backstage and we're going, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a gag, mate. Did you, you know? know that
1: the BBC... When it first came out, the BBC banned "My Generation" by The Who. Not because you know why don't you all not because they thought oh he's going to say fuck and he didn't. There's a kind they did it because they banned it because they were afraid it would offend stutterers.
0: No, is that true? That's a great story. I didn't know that. Well, fantastic! Oh yeah, that's brilliant. Have you ever gotten yourself out of trouble by using humour? Now, I suspect on stage that's a given that you you do that yeah. but in in other aspects of your life
1: probably not since I was a kid i mean i I'm, there were there were occasions you know just a classic it's the, it's almost a cliche you know you you make the school bully laugh and then they, they won't steal your dinner money there was a bit of that so you know this guy who broke me flask and would always hit me in the queue for dinner i i would end up just doing an impression of the of the football teacher or the, the physics teacher and he, and he you know he'd laugh at that and he wouldn't steal me dinner money i mean you know that's such a cliche isn't it but um
0: well no but it's true because uh, you know i think i used it all the time at school yeah. i mean i went to i think you went to the comprehensive as well didn't you a
1: State a state grammar school yeah
0: great grammar school yeah i went to a comprehensive big congress we had two thousand boys yeah you know you, you had to have something that yeah. was in your armory to diffuse that, and to, you build on that um, throughout your life, don't you? Is just you know that that stuff you learned early on. Now in business, is it survival of the fittest or survival of the funniest?
1: It's hard to think that it could we could ever get to a, a stage where it would literally be survival of the funniest. <laughs> It'd be be nice because, I mean, the point is there's a sort of an implication with survival of the fittest that fittest also means most ruthless and cruelest and most sociopathic. And it's no accident that I think that that, that studies have shown that an awful lot of people who are hugely successful in business also tick an awful lot of boxes in the psychopath test because, you know, Lack of empathy helps when you're firing somebody or you're stepping on somebody to get a little bit further up the corporate ladder. I suspect it probably still is survival of the fittest,
0: sadly. Within books, is is that world different? Do you know, I mean, you said it was very sort of um, supportive.
1: It's no different to, to any other industry really, Paul, it, it, except it's very polite. It's extremely polite and rather old fashioned. Let's think of a situation where an agent is trying to sell one of their client's books. You know, this is a very common thing. You, you you have an agent and, especially if you're a new author. So a new author signs with an agent and that agent then contacts lots of publishers to see if they want to buy the book. It would be the easiest thing in the world for an agent to say to, oh, uh, To say to HarperCollins, well, Random House have offered 150,000, so that you know, HarperCollins then say, all right, we'll offer 160,000 when there is no such offer, right? But I've never come across one who would do that. Because i just go, oh, that's not, that's not done. We wouldn't do that. That'd be a terrible thing to do. So it's a very polite industry. But they're fine and nice and supportive and lovely as long as you're doing well. And I've, I've been with the same publisher for over 20 years. Uh, and they've always been lovely to me. That's because I've always sold books for them. You're only as good as your last couple of books. I'd have plenty of friends who have been dropped ruthlessly and without mercy when, you know, the book stopped selling. It can be a ruthless business.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's just any business can be ruthless, can't it? Really, yeah. and, and it's about success. And you've been enormously successful within your business. What does what does success mean to you? Is it about the work now?
1: Yeah, it's about the work now. I mean, there's a there's you know, I'm a strong believer in the harder I work, the luckier I get. You have to pick, use that luck, and run with it. You know, yeah. and then you and then you suddenly have a once you have a fan base, once you have people who you know are going to buy your books do you know what i mean i mean i'm not saying that i could turn out garbage now for the rest of my life and it would continue to sell but there are plenty of high profile authors selling lots of books who have been phoning it in for a very long time and you're aware of that and so you just think I- i'm still trying to write the best book i can there comes a point when you, you might go my best book was 10 years ago it's like usain bolt i always have a feeling that usain bolt at some point is going to go that's as fast as i can bloody run <laughs> That's it. It happened three years ago, you know, in Munich. And that's it. I'm never going to get any faster. He's always going to try. But I think you have to have that ambition. So, yes, yeah, success for me means, thankfully, I've got a platform where I now have a right to fail.
0: Is there still, because I think all successful people are driven. You touched on that. And as a psychologist, I was like going, is that that imposter syndrome is still there? Oh, God
1: for- Oh, I've- of course it is. You're constantly waiting for that little tap on the shoulder going. There's been a hideous administrative error. <laughs> this we were supposed to give that book deal to Mike Bellingham, um, and it was just a typo. No, no, absolutely. And I've seen that from from writers a zillion times more successful than I am. From your your, your Lee Childs and your John Grishams and your you know uh, they all have that. They all have that, and they also don't take themselves that seriously. Which is very, it's great to see that. Really, and they're also very supportive of people coming up behind them. You know, and again, in a way, I never really saw in comedy. You know, you're very few big comedians mm. saying to the new act, "That was brilliant." Mm. You know, fantastic, mate. There's more a kind of, "I'm watching. I'm watching <laughs> you." Um, but no, the, the, the really successful authors tend to be very supportive of the newer authors.
0: Well, the, but there's a model for, for comedy to start taking on, really. They yeah. will. They'll never do that, obviously. But yeah. no, uh, so. <laughs> we come to the part of the show um, which uh, we like to call Quickfire Questions. Oh, OK. Quickfire Questions! Who is the funniest business person you've ever met? Oh, Lord. Now, given that your business was comedy for years, I suppose you could veer over to to somebody in comedy if you think, but I'm trying well, to push I, you. I, I,
1: I know plenty of crime writers. Well, I know plenty of crime writers who are just hilariously funny. There's a wonderful Irish writer called John Connolly who writes incredibly dark supernatural crime, incredibly dark and and you know touching and whatever. But he's just you go out for a night in the pub with him and you you won't stop laughing. Just hilariously funny, just naturally gifted, sort of, you know, raconteur. And you can't you, you can't teach that. That's just who he is.
0: What book makes you laugh?
1: I knew this question was coming, so I've got it to show you. It's this book. It's a book called The Law of the Playground, right? Which which I picked up. It's it's good, it's a good ten years old. And I laughed so hard at this book. I would read it in bed every night, That eventually it made my wife angry. i just stop that. Nothing's that funny. It's incredible. It says on the front, a puerile and disturbing dictionary of playground insults and games. And it's basically just the stuff we did at school, the stupid rituals, the stupid nicknames. And the other thing that was very funny is I have a very funny memory of it. It is hilarious. But a funny memory of buying it, as you can see from the jacket, Right. It's got that on the front. And when I went to buy the book, I couldn't find it in the shop. And I asked a a shop assistant if they could find it. And they pulled it off the shelf and went, there you go. And they went, oh, I'm sorry. Somebody's drawn on (laughs) this. And I thought, do I tell them that's actually the jacket design or do I try and get a discount? but it, the law of the playground, I mean, I just, I laughed like a drain for, 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 on every page.
0: So yeah, with the, all that schoolboy humour is still there, isn't it? Well, it's, it's
1: because just... also, it, it also keys into nostalgia. It's that thing about what, what yeah. not just the laugh at the funny thing, but the memory that that evokes and everything comes together. I, I could not stop laughing. And I was laughing like I was 11 in the playground. You know, oh. the fact that we called that teacher that name or we play, it was just a joy.
0: Absolutely. Regression. Yeah, yeah. But that's I mean, regression therapy. Now,
1: you know, but bear in mind, we're going back to 1970s. You know, some of the things we did and said and whatever, very much not be acceptable now. But, you know, we're talking 40 years ago. 50 yeah. years ago.
0: <laughs> what film makes you laugh?
1: Probably have to be This Is Spinal Tap, which, you know, I, I can watch... Any t- one of those films that anytime it's on, you find it and you go, I'll watch it, and there's always, I'll, I'll laugh at it again, however many times I've heard the jokes.
0: Well, you see, it is my favorite film as well, and it's no surprise that we both have a music background as well. Oh, there's always a new line, and there's an, always an appropriate line for any situation. Yeah. You know, it's a very fine line between clever and stupid, you know. And,
1: and, and whenever, with this band of crime writers I'm in now, whenever we walk from the dressing room to the stage, somebody will go, just a little jog to the left. Somebody, somebody <laughs> will say that, you know. <laughs> The fun-loving <laughs> crime writers and puppet show—it's—it's—I uh, it's, never tire of watching it.
0: It's uh, this, this is our new direction. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> this is not. Oh, not we wrote meeting,
0: this one.
1: Whenever we have a band meeting about something, somebody will also go. If I could just raise a practical point, oh, are we going to play Stonehenge? No, we're not going to fucking <laughs> play Stonehenge. Somebody will do that. Every band meeting. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's funny, I had Mark Bedford on from Madness and uh, we, we go, you must join us for a lunch one day um, and you'll have nothing but spinal tap for the whole lunch. Oh, what word makes you laugh, Mark?
1: I, I couldn't think of a particular word, Paul. I, uh, I, no, I mean, it would be something juvenile. It would be, I mean, it would be a swear word quite probably and what would make me laugh is, is the way it upsets people. I never get tired of the complaints and emails I get about bad language in my books. And a writer, I've already mentioned, Chris Brookmeyer, he and I do, as part of the show we do, we just sit and read these, these things out. People who pick up a book, I mean, they'll pick up a book and go, oh, what's, what's in this? Oh, murder, rape, child abuse, all my favourites. Oh, swearing, heaven's <laughs> no And you just go that, how messed up are you? And I, see, I, so I find that funny. Yeah, so I'd probably just laugh at the word fuck because I'm, I'm a child.
0: No, but it's got a hard K and always funny. Always. Always funny. Taking uh, a shift right over to the other side, what's not funny? I don't think anything's
1: not funny. I was thinking about this a lot. When you take something out of context, racism is not funny until you hear... Richard Pryor talking about it. It, as a thing, is not funny, but that doesn't mean you can't be funny about it. And I think that applies, and it all depends who's telling the jokes. It all depends, you know, if somebody's punching up or punching down, who the target of the joke is, all that stuff, of course. So I don't think there is anything that you can't, you know, murder isn't funny, but plenty of people write comedy crime novels about it. And plenty of people will read them and laugh about it. You're still talking about murder at the end of the day. The Holocaust isn't funny until you hear a brilliant Jewish comedian talking about it you know, so and in a way you have to laugh, you know, it's that thing of tragedy plus time, you know, we all know that, but
0: yeah. so I don't no, think
1: uh, there is anything. I don't think there is any, there's anything that's off limits. If the joke is funny enough and the target of that joke is the right target of the joke.
0: And- it's funny because we all have our own personal things that we don't like though, don't we? Where, where we go, no, I, uh, that makes me feel uncomfortable.
1: Yes, I, but I mean, uh, uh, to give you an analogy, I remember when I had very young kids, I didn't want to write about violence against children. But I was well aware of that, but it was a very personal thing. I don't want to read about it. I don't want to write about it. But I also knew that there are other people who should be and were doing that very well, you know, because it is a subject that should be written about. Just for me, at that moment in my life, because I was surrounded by young children, well, I had a couple of them, I didn't want to do it. But I think there's always room for somebody to do the thing you find distasteful.
0: Would you rather be considered clever or funny?
1: Funny. All day, all day long, all day, both on a magic island, but, but yeah, funny, 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 funny.
0: But do you not think that in order to be funny, you have to be clever?
1: I don't know, because there are so many different types of funny. There's people who are linguistically funny, which I always appreciate. I've never been, I've never been a massive fan of slapstick. For example, but somebody who is clever with words will always make me laugh. I'll always appreciate a good a good funny column in a newspaper. Or...
0: Would you consider Laurel and Hardy slapstick?
1: I suppose, I suppose, and there's no question whatsoever that Stan Laurel was a comedy genius. I mean, absolutely no question at all that he was hugely clever and he couldn't have been that funny without it. I know I don't I think maybe you can't be funny without being clever. So there you go. I I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd like to be funny, which means I'm also clever.
0: it's a double whammy perfect and finally desert island gags you can only take one gag with you to a desert island what would it be
1: such a toss-up I've always had a a fondness for Jewish humour because I I had through some strange quirk of schooling in Birmingham growing up I had an orthodox Jewish education I was at an orthodox Jewish uh, junior school so I grew up surrounded by that you know, I, I would go see my friends on a fr- on a Friday night, and I'd be at the sort of Sabbath meal with all my friends, and I had to, you know, I would worry gamelka. I mean, I'm not Jewish, right? But I had. It's a very strange story, but so I I was always drawn to Jewish humor, and my t- they're two very simple Jewish jokes. Are you going to make me choose? Okay, no, so, you can. Okay, you can. so it's the, the the old guy that goes into a restaurant every single day at the same time, and he has been doing it for thirty years, and he always orders the same thing: as a bowl of chicken soup every day. As a chicken soup, he pays and leaves, always the same every day. I'm Regular as clockwork, in he comes, comes in one day and they go, oh, chicken soup. And the waiter always comes over and goes, how's the soup? And he goes, lovely. And he comes over on this one day and go, goes, you know, how is it? And the old, man, the old man goes, taste the soup. And the waiter is horrified. I mean, it's absolutely horrified. He goes, oh my God, is there something, is there something wrong? Is it, is it, is it not warm enough? And he goes, taste the soup. And he goes, it's the new chef. Oh my God, we got a new chef in. He's put too much salt in. He's put, Todd warned him about the salt. Is it too much? Taste the soup. Is there not enough chicken? Is there not enough chicken? Taste the soup. And so the waiter leans down and sees, and he goes, oh, you haven't got a spoon. And the guy goes, aha! (laughs) I, I just think that's hilarious. Hilarious joke. Very similarly, he's a guy who goes into a sort of Jewish grocer's and he's trying to buy, I don't know what he's trying to buy, a bottle of olive oil. And all the way up the aisles, all he can see are huge sacks of salt. There's salt down there. There's salt up there. He goes into the next aisle and it's just salt, salt, salt. And he goes up to the guy behind the counter and he goes, why is there so much salt? And the guy goes, Ah, well, you see, me, I can't sell salt. But the guy who sells me salt, Oi, can he sell salt? I just, I just <laughs> love that joke so much. So it would be a toss up between those two.
0: Oh, both brilliant as you are. Mark Billiam, thank you so much for being on the Humorology podcast. It's been a pleasure. The Humorology Podcast was hosted by Paul Barros and produced by Simon Banks. Music by Steve Hayworth. Creative direction by Les Hughes. And additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky Production.